Well, why don't we grab our Bibles and open back up to the passage that was just read to us. That's Luke 17, 1 to 10. Luke 17. And let's pray together once more. Our Father, uh, your Son says that if we abide in him and his words abide in us, we can ask for whatever we wish and it will be done for us. So please let his words dwell in us and help us not only to abide in him, but to be like him. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. I don't want you hanging out with him anymore, my mum said to me. He is a bad influence. You ever had your parents say something like that to you? Or is that just my experience? Maybe your parents do say that to you uh, currently. It's the kind of thing that a parent says when they think their kids cannot see something that the parent can see. Something about a bad influence, a bad role model. And of course, she was actually right about my friend. The way he, uh, the way that I shaped my life around his was not good. But the same, of course, can be said of much more respectable influences than my friend. I even remember as a new Christian looking for good role models of the Christian life, thinking, what does it look like to live this Christian life out? And uh, I, I looked for a model of, uh, of a, a man who was living a family life, you know, being a good husband and so on. And I thought I'd found one until someone had said, look, don't confuse what you think the Christian life is for what the Bible says the Christian life is in that particular area. And that was very good advice. That person also was right. The person I had looked to had started to shape my life more than what the Bible was, more than the Bible at that point. Bad influences are real threats to our walk with the Lord God. Now, to Jesus, that's exactly what the Pharisees were. And throughout this whole section from Luke chapter 13 and verse 20 all the way through to 1710, we've got this main unit which is talking about discipleship. And all the while, the Pharisees have been in the background, sometimes in the foreground. But these guys, in case you do not know, were the religious leaders of the day. Teachers, Bible teachers, pastors, influencers, you might call them. Their teaching set the tone for how people back then followed God. Their lifestyle set the tone for aspiring disciples, those who would then go on to teach the word of God to the people of God in Israel. But Jesus wanted to make sure that his own disciples knew that the Pharisees were not a model to follow, to imitate, but were in fact a bad influence. And they needed it, to be sure, because in many ways, even in Luke's gospel to this point, and even if you're familiar with the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, or John, you know that sometimes the disciples acted in very Pharisaical ways. So like the Pharisees, they were often proud. For example, arguing over who was going to be the greatest. Or like the Pharisees, they sought places of honor like seats at Jesus' right and left hand. But this passage here in verses 1 to 10 is essentially Jesus saying to them, 
I don't want you hanging out with them anymore kind of conversation. I don't want you to make your life a carbon copy of theirs. Their ministry is definitely not the way of the disciple. So watch out. True discipleship doesn't look like that. True discipleship looks like this. Three things in verses 1 to 10. The first is watch yourself. Don't lead people into sin. That's my first point. Watch yourself. Don't lead people into sin. Here's why. Stumbling blocks are common enough. Look with me at verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. Now, the stumbling block is one of many words or pictures used in the Bible to describe temptation and falling into sin. Um, the imagery says it all, really. It's something in your way that trips you up in your walk with God and leaves you by the wayside. It makes you fall into sin. And Jesus says here, which is kind of refreshing for us in many ways, that these stumbling blocks are inevitable, okay? We, temptation is going to be a very common thing for people living in this world, okay? So if that's your experience, you're not on your own, this is not unusual, this is actually very, very common. Indeed, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, these are the temptations that are common to mankind. Even Jesus himself experienced temptation. And we read about that in Hebrews chapter 4, yet was without sin. And if he's realistic about it, so can we be. But stumbling blocks, of course, can take many and various forms. But Jesus says, just make sure they don't look like you. Just make sure they don't look like you. Watch that they don't come through you. Verse 1b, woe. In fact, woe to anyone through whom they come. Woe is not an expression of surprise like, whoa, more like, whoa, bad, angry, punishment, judgment. You knew that. Woe was a very, very strong word to select at this point. Woe is what Jesus pronounces on those who reject his word in Luke chapter 6. Woe is what Jesus pronounces on the Pharisees for being blind guides, leading people into pits in Luke 11. And it's a word that's designed to evoke in us a sense of great and severe judgment. You know, verse 2 appeared on the news. There would be a warning. Uh, this video contains distressing scenes. It's the picture you should get when you think of the word woe. But Jesus describes the extent of this woe in verse 2 by comparing it to this horrible death. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So not only can you experience temptation, you can be somebody who, who puts temptation in the path of someone else and causes them to stumble. And Jesus says, it would be better for you to suffer a horrendous execution than to do any of that. That's how seriously he takes our causing other people to sin. Now, in case you didn't know, millstones were absolutely massive. They're often about five foot in diameter, huge things, so big they often needed an animal to turn them. But better to have one of these tied round your neck and suffer execution by drowning 
than to suffer the punishment due to those who lead little ones from God and into sin. Now, who are the little ones in this passage? Not children. They are God's people. God often speaks of his people. Jesus speaks of God's people in very tender terms, and little ones is one of those terms. Now, what does this mean for those who follow Jesus? We've got to ask that question, don't we? Is like, am I going to experience hell and woe and severe judgment? Even if I say I believe in Jesus and I put a temptation in someone else's sin and they stumble and fall into sin, am I done for? No, that's not what it's saying. But he is, Jesus is using the sin of the Pharisees here, remember, to help his own disciples live with a godly regard for the way that their lives influence the lives of others. He's encouraging them, those who walk as disciples of the Lord Jesus, to be mindful of their influence on others. Don't be the kind of person that trips somebody else up. That's why he says, watch yourselves. Watch yourselves, verse 3. So are we mindful of our influence on others? Are we aware of just how easy it is to trip others up? We may be a joker by laughing at things they shouldn't can make something unacceptable acceptable in the eyes of a new Christian. A boyfriend flush with lust can convince his girlfriend to do something that's reserved for marriage. A member unhappy with the direction of a ministry leader or an eldership can, by their words, lead weaker members to despise the leader of that ministry or the elders. Or a pastor, by reading his own interpretation into a text, can, by his sermon, lay heavy burdens on the members. You can almost hear the millstone rolling into the room. These are common to us. And many like them. It's actually really easy to put stumbling blocks in people's way. And that's why Jesus says to his disciples, watch yourselves. The Pharisees are really, really good at this. Let's make sure you're really, really bad at that. Let's not be those who put stumbling blocks in each other's way. In fact, let's be those who remove them. Let's not be those who lead people into sin. We are, followers of Christ, are meant to be those who lead people out of sin. And that's what Jesus explains next. One of the ways in which we lead people out of sin instead of leading people into sin is through forgiveness. And this is point two, forgive others. Lead people out of sin. This is what we see in verses three and four. Look with me. Jesus says there are two ways that you can do this by rebuking and by forgiving. Now rebuking, you can lead people out of sin by pointing out. Verse 3, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. Now, by brother or sister here, he's talking about fellow believers. So, siblings, stand down. Naturally, the context for that is the very churches that these disciples would go on to pastor and to be a part of. So, if fellow members sin against you, you can rebuke them. And if we're being honest, we don't like the sound of this. We're rather uncomfortable with it. 
preferring to avoid awkward conversations at all costs? Most of us. Or we're worried about coming across as hypocrites. Because who am I to say something to anybody else about their sin? When I know how putrid and filthy my own heart is. You just feel like a hypocrite. Well, somehow we convince ourselves that we're wiser than Jesus and think it's better instead to do nothing and just avoid that person forever. Or tell our friends and talk about the person behind their back or write a letter to the elders and let someone else deal with it instead. Lots of other ways that we try and deal with being sinned against than to go to a brother or sister who's sinned specifically, remember, against you and go and speak to them. So Jesus says, if a brother or sister sins against you, let's hear these words again, rebuke them. Why? Well, quite simply, it's, it's not to come down on them with harsh judgment. That's often the picture people have when you think of the word rebuke. You think of a frowning face and a wagging finger. Rather, you should think of rebuke in terms of a big heart. A big heart. Because one of the, it's one of the ways that we demonstrate our love for someone else. A rebuke is one way of saying, I love you, to another member of Christ's body. If we leave them in their sin and just let them carry on in complete ignorance of the fact that they're sinning in the, this way against you or potentially against other people, we must not love them very much. But one of the ways that we watch ourselves is to rebuke. We may in God's eyes actually become complicit in someone else's sin by saying nothing. We sometimes forget that aspect of it. Leviticus 19.17 says, rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you will not share in their guilt. So there is a way that you can choose to do nothing that is good. We'll get to that. But there is a way that you can choose to do nothing that is bad that then makes you complicit in that person's sin. That's really bad. Because then it's not just one person sinning, that's two people sinning. And sin is an offense against God. Now, when to rebuke? Well, of course, that is a wisdom issue. There is no doubt that love covers over a multitude of sins. And I'm glad that that word multitude there is not defined by any specific number. I'm grateful for that. But sometimes it's more loving to uncover a sin by gently and in pursuing restoration, point out someone's sin in order to lead them out of it. So brothers and sisters, this actually requires, for us to obey Jesus in this aspect of discipleship, requires us to be okay with being rebuked. Never mind the rebuking aspect of it just now. Certainly, if you enjoy rebuking, if you right now are thinking like, I feel like I'm born to be the rebuking police, you should stand down and don't go in all guns blazing. But as we think about this as a church together, as members together of one body, are we okay with this if somebody does this? If somebody comes and says to us, brother, you know, I know I'm not perfect, but I really feel like I need to raise something with you. 
I feel like when you did this, it, it, it wasn't good. In fact, I believe it was sinful. It hurt me. I believe it's causing division between us. And because we're brothers in Christ, we should not have a division like this. Therefore, please can you consider your behavior. You know, you're, you've not to go up to people and that's, you can couch it in gentle terms. I've just made that up. You can couch it in gentle terms. You don't need to go and say, I rebuke you. But it's a loving thing to do. But how do you feel about being on the receiving end of that? If someone loves us enough to obey Jesus and loves us enough to rebuke us, are we open to what God will do through it? That it might actually be good for our sanctification. Many things can stop us from receiving such love. Pride, defensiveness, blame shifting. Wasn't it me, it was you. Uh, returning fire. Oh, you picked one for me. What about you? Or all manner of things. But if Jesus commands it, we have a duty to be open to it, especially when it's done correctly and to do it ourselves. Now, many other passages tell us how this should be done. Matthew 18 provides a specific example. I don't have time to go into that just now, actually. All that it does is lay out for us uh, as a church four phases in how we exercise love and rebuke of someone. And the first phase is just what Jesus is talking about here. That rebuke is, first of all, a private matter. You keep it between the two of you. If your brother or sister sins, go and speak to them. Can't tell you how many times somebody's come up to me and said, I really think this should be done. Somebody's done this. And I'm like, have you spoken to that person? No. Well, there's the first thing to do. There are other phases after that. All that serve to protect the integrity of the church and above all, the reputation of Jesus. We should think about those things. What and do what Jesus, what Jesus describes we should put into practice. So are we leading people out of sin personally, lovingly restoring brothers and sisters in this way, even corporately? Do we care enough about one another to practice what Jesus prescribes here and in Matthew 18 and other places? Without personal rebuke and even what we might call church discipline, friends, sin wins. It has its way in a person. And in the book of James, it tells you where that heads. It can lead to death. Spiritually speaking, it causes division, it fractures fellowship, it chokes the life out of churches. But God, in the gospel, encourages us not to let sin win, but to point it out and forgive it. To lead people out. This is what rebuking is designed to do, and not just the rebuking, of course. But the second aspect of what Jesus calls us to do here, but forgive. Forgive lead people out of sin by absorbing the offense or absorbing the pain or absorbing the debt. You could have put any words in there. All fit. He says, this is what my disciples do. The Pharisees rebuke and their judgments are waggy, fingery and frowny. They're harsh and severe. Forgiveness is what marks my disciples. Verse 3 continues, if they repent. The brother or sister that you have rebuked, if they, for, if they repent, forgive. 
Now, what is repentance? Repentance is what we seek in response to this gentle and restorative rebuke. It's turning from sin in sorrow over it and seeking to live differently in the most simple terms. And it sounds lovely until we remember that we're still talking about sins personally committed against us. We said rebuking someone is hard. Perhaps forgiving someone is even harder. You know why that is? It's because to forgive someone for the sin that they've committed against you is to forego the right to make them pay. It's to forgive means absorbing the pain of the offense that's been caused to you. And that's very difficult. Even for those who've been courageous enough to point someone's sin out to them, even when that person repents and comes and says, I'm sorry, we find this difficult enough. And then it's like Jesus just anticipates the question, well, what about if they go and do it again? Well, Jesus says, verse 4, see it with me. Even if they sin against you seven times a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Now, don't misunderstand this, friends. Jesus is not saying that everyone has a quota of seven forgivenesses. You don't say to your kids, hey, that's six, last chance, then we're done. No, number seven is the number of completeness. He's saying, as often as someone repents, you, my disciples, forgive. On one occasion, another occasion when Jesus teaches something similar, he talks about forgiving 70 times 70. So even if somebody sins against you 490 times and repents 490 times, forgive them every time. Jesus says you must, must. So friends, do we find forgiving someone difficult? I think we all do. For some, forgiveness is hard because things don't seem to change. It's the same old sins just get repeated over and over again to the point you feel like just going out and getting a t-shirt printed, just, I forgive you, written on it. Just save time. Jesus says, as often as they repent, forgive. For others, forgiveness is hard because you feel so aggrieved that in anger, really, you want them to pay. Even though you and yourself, I myself, experience this, even though the anger itself is sinful, even though the heart that wants the vengeance is sinful, still, I'm going to withhold forgiveness. We're sinning twice when a person sinned against us once. That's worse than daft. That's offensive to God. But we want people to feel the pain that we've felt, don't we? Jesus says, as often as they repent, forgive. Now for others, forgiveness is hard because the sin is particularly horrible, maybe even criminal. What does Jesus want us to do? Now remember the very, very specific context. This is talking about believers repenting. Someone who is expressing heartfelt sorrow over sin. What does Jesus want us to do even if that person who's committed something heinous and horrible repents? Jesus is saying, forgive. Now, it's worth saying that forgiveness, let's clarify this, 
Forgiveness does not condone the sin. It doesn't make it okay. Neither does forgiveness mean that there are no consequences to a person's sin. There should be. There is. Forgiveness doesn't mean that suffering is over either. Just because you say to someone, I forgive you, means that you are then free of all the ache and the pain and the stress and the anxiety that's come because of whatever happened. But forgiveness is what Christ calls for, for our good and for his glory. And I get it, it's, it's terribly difficult. But by forgiving a repentant believer, it gives us the opportunity to turn the light on in a sinner's life that helps them see Christ and Lord willing to actually lead them out of sin and into a better way. Now, someone will ask, what if they don't repent? Well, that's a whole other sermon. Mark 11 is the place I would encourage you to go. And uh, Liam at charlottechapel.org is the email address I'd encourage you to write to. But ultimately, forgiveness will only be extended by those who themselves know the joy of being forgiven. We ourselves owed the Lord God by our sin a terrible debt. A terrible debt. Our sin demanded full payment. Justice is what is called for by the holy and righteous God. And what did he do? What did he do, friends? Did he call time on time and scrunch us all up and did he roll in the millstones? Ah, he sent his son. He sent his son in love to proclaim the good news of the gospel that we who hear of the holiness of God and shrink back in fear because of our sinfulness might then approach that same holy God because the son that he sent, he sent to die. And that when he died on the cross, he forgave. He pronounced it. He paid the price for the debt that we owed. We were spiritually indebted to God by our sin. And when Jesus stretched out and bloody on that cross, before he died, said, paid in full. He took our punishment on himself so that we who believe in him might have life in his name, forgiveness for our sins, mercy instead of judgment, grace and grace abounding. So those here today who have not yet believed in the Lord Jesus definitely should. Your sins are still held against you. The millstones are still rolling into the room. The way to be cut free from those and that judgment, that woe, is to believe in the Lord Jesus and you can do that freely. Forgiveness in him is free. If you struggle with the idea of that, not sure what that looks like, I've got a couple of books I'd like to give away. I'm going to put them down here in the platform after the service. One is the Gospel of Mark. We'd love to give you that as a gift to take away and read it for yourself. The other one is forgiveness free. I only have three of these. 
So if you like reading, don't come and get one. But if this is a particular issue for you, please come and take one. It's a gift for you. It's free. You don't have to pay for it. But those who do believe this gospel already, we, brothers and sisters, who've committed together in fellowship and life of this church, aren't we absolutely delighted by the grace and the forgiveness that has been poured out on us again and again and again? Endlessly. How many times have you been forgiven over this past week? 490? Seven? Ah, thousands. Me too. And what does that make us? It makes us grateful. It makes us so glad of the love of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he would treat us not as our sins deserve. But the opposite. And so who are we to hold someone else's sin against them? Especially when that brother or sister comes in sorrow repenting and asking for forgiveness now i get it forgiveness is hard i think that's what makes the apostles now that it's specifically the apostles the 12 the people who've been sent out on specific missions and who've been with jesus for some closed doors behind closed doors kind of teaching even the ones who are best taught and who have seen the most are sitting in response to this teaching on forgiveness and going you what increase our faith this is too hard, Jesus. You need to give us more. Think how that sounds to the Lord of glory. <laughs> you need to give us more. This is too hard. Now, how does Jesus respond? He points them. He says, they're saying to him, you need to give us more. We need something bigger than what you've already given us. And he points them to something tiny. He points them to something small. In order to say, even if you've got this much, it's enough. To believe. It's what verses 5 and 6 are about, about fixing your eyes on the object of your faith. Not how much faith you've got to do this. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, Jesus says, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Now, there is no instance in the New Testament where you've got people doing this. No one ever reported seeing trees flying into the Mediterranean. Jesus isn't teaching them the art of telekinesis. That would be cool. But he's teaching them that they don't need great faith to move something immovable like a 600-year-old deep-rooted mulberry tree. You only need a little bit of faith. You need a mustard-sized seed bit of faith. Here's why. The smallest faith that unites us with Christ will engage enough of his power to do all that he wants us to do as his disciples. No doubt. That's why he's given us the Holy Spirit to live in us. We do not lack what we need to do the things he calls us to do. What kind of severe taskmaster would he be if he hadn't given us a spirit or helped us? So if we believe in Jesus, friends, we have at the very least the smallest of faith. And that mustard seed-sized faith gets us the same amount of Jesus as great faith does. Same amount, same Holy Spirit as great faith. And he gives us the ability to do greater things than tossing mulberry cabers into locks. He gives us the faith to forgive repentant sinners. Not just seven times a day, but 7,000 times a day. And even more if we need to. 
So you see what Jesus is teaching his disciples? Don't be like these Pharisees. Watch yourselves. That's the first thing. Forgive others. That's the second thing. The third thing, serve God. This is your daily duty. And we'll finish with this, verses 7 to 10. Jesus tells them a story here to remind them and us of what we are in relation to him. We are servants. Therefore, we should do as God instructs. Now, it's a weird thing at the end, it seems at first. But let me point out the obvious of what this little story tells us. There is a servant in here. And there is a master. The servant and the master in the story represent one aspect of the relationship between God and us, uh, God and us, his disciples. But it's really a picture for us of what's called indentured service. So when you see this servant and master relationship in here, don't think employer and employee, it's not that. And when you see this servant and master thing going on, don't think slavery, it, it's not that either. Uh, this indentured service that is pictured here was a means in New Testament times of paying off a debt that you owed. There was no bankruptcy laws at that time. You couldn't just say, I'm bankrupt, I don't have anything. If you owed someone money, there were two options. You either went to debtor's prison for a long time, actually, until you paid the debt through your service there, or you entered that person's service in order to pay that debt. But it was full-time, full-time. It wasn't eight hours on, 16 off. You were a servant until your debt was paid 24-7. So what's Jesus trying to say? What's his point? Well, his point is, if you remember who you are as a disciple, you will do as Jesus instructs, for he's your master. It really is as simple as that. But most importantly, he emphasizes the point that, listen, the master does not relax the demands of discipleship. We don't get to go halfway through this life of service and, we, and somehow find God saying, uh, as Jesus puts it in verse 7b, saying to the servant, you know, dirty from the field, oh, you've been working really hard. Pull up a chair, take a load off, we'll eat together. No. Even the people who are listening are saying, oh, of course he doesn't. He's not going to say that. No, he's been saying there's this to do and there's that to do. So the work is not yet done. The servant's rest will come later. But most notably from verse 9, the thing that's probably most jarring or surprising to us is, is that there's no thanks either. Verse 9, thanking the servant because he did what he was told to do. Is that going to happen? Everybody listening to this story at that time is going to say, well, no. Of course he's not going to thank him, not for simply doing what was in the job description and indeed what was necessary for paying off the debt. So what then is the point? Verse 10. So you also, when you have done everything you were told today to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. What does this mean? Here's what it means. Jesus is telling us that he is worthy of our service and calls for obedience in all who call.
call him Lord. By the forgiveness that we have received from him, we are forever in his debt. Not that we're trying to pay him back for the cross or for the forgiveness that he gave us. That's impossible. He forgave us freely. I've already said that earlier. But we serve him out of deep, deep gratitude. And by our recognition of him as our master, or as we more commonly call him, Lord, we serve him. We live according to his purposes. We recognize that we have been saved from slavery to sin, not to absolute freedom, in a sense, understand me, but slavery to Christ. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So we serve him not according to any no, not according to any merit of our own, but with a deep sense of unworthiness. We don't deserve to be in his house and under his care, and yet we are. Praise God. But neither do we serve him with a sense of proud expectation, like the Pharisees did. Oh, I'm so good. I've memorized like half my Bible. God must be very pleased with me. Would you like to pat that back, Lord? You know, none of that. We don't serve with a sense of proud expectation, but humble duty. Even when we do all he calls us to do, not shepherding sheep or making meals as the servants do in here, but watching ourselves, not leading people into sin, forgiving other people by rebuking and forgiving, leading people out of sin. Serving God humbly in daily duties, such as this rebuking and forgiving, even then we count it all joy and a privilege to be in his house and in his service. So friends, are we guilty of serving Jesus according to our own nine to five? Just at convenient times? Or is his whole is our are our whole lives his? We're in danger of acting like the master. But Jesus says in regard to the things that he commands, don't forget who you are. Now he does say in other places, there is a reward that awaits. So there's a day in the future when we'll enter his rest. Do not get me wrong. I'm not forgetting those passages. One day he'll seat us at his table and serve us, but it's not today. One day we'll hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant but it's not today. Until then, we serve God humbly in the tasks he's assigned until that work is done. So are there any areas of our lives or church life where we're sat down, spiritually speaking, putting our feet up? Or where we respond with a, yeah, I like that bit, but maybe not that bit. I'm not up for the rebuking bit. I'm not up for the forgiving bit or any other bit. We need to be careful because the demands of Christ have not in the slightest bit relaxed. Therefore, we don't. Not in our service of him. So watch yourselves. Forgive each other. Serve God to your duty. This is the way of our master Jesus for his disciples. Let's pray. our Father, we thank you for this word. And we thank you for 
the Lord impressing this upon us, his followers, even as he did back then. Help us to be those who live according to his word and not in any other way. And thank you for giving us the faith to live it out. We need your help in this and you've graciously provided it for us in your spirit. And we praise you for him in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we come to share in the Lord's Supper, let's stand and sing by faith.